nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we talk with filmmaker Robbie Lepser about his new film, Power Struggle, about the battle to close down the Vermont Yankee nuclear facility, including some choice statements by nuclear engineer and Fairwinds Energy's Arnie Gunderson, which are excerpted from the film, and a tribute to Dr. Stephen Wing of the University of North Carolina's Department of Epidemiology, a brilliant scientist who passed away on November 9th. We will include excerpts from a 2013 presentation he did at Dr. Helen Caldicott's symposium, The Medical and Ecological Consequences of the Fukushima Nuclear Accident, plus numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, the nuclear reactor duck and cover report on what's gone wrong this week at those aging reactors, and more honest nuclear information than most of us can even think about, given the events of this previous week. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, November 15, 2016, and here is the week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting this week in North St. Louis, where a Bridgeton couple has filed a lawsuit claiming that tests have confirmed radiation found in their home and their garden, is linked to the Westlake landfill. Thorium-230, which is a type of uranium linked to the Manhattan Project, and Manhattan Project debris is buried at the nearby Westlake landfill, tested at levels 1,000 times above the normal background level. The owners of the home, Robin Ellison Daly and her husband Mike, have sued landfill owner Republic Services and the Mellencrot Corporation, among several others. They seek a buyout and relocation costs, saying that their ranch house in the Spanish Village subdivision is now essentially worthless. The Just Moms STL group is calling for us to make our calls to Missouri Governor Nixon and EPA Federal Administrator Gina McCarthy to relocate families from their area immediately. The phone numbers will be up on our website, nuclearhotfit.com, under this episode, number 282. Last Tuesday, Election Day, there was an explosion at the Indian Point nuclear reactor just outside of New York City. It happened in what the USNRC reports is a protected area and was due to equipment failure. A statement by Manajo Green, Environmental Action Director for Hudson River Sloop Clearwater, said 
Tuesday's electrical fire on a cable running between Indian Point's two reactors is another of several emergency events at the aging and dangerous nuclear plant, which 20 million people live or work within a 50-mile radius of. She went on to say, earlier this year, Unit 2 had hundreds of faulty, degraded, and missing bolts inside the reactor. The fact that the NRC has not even required Unit 3, which is identical to Unit 2, to be closed for inspection and repair, exemplifies the NRC's lax oversight, which puts industry profits ahead of public health and safety. In addition to transformer fires, other electrical failures and repeated leaks of radioactive isotopes into the air and the groundwater under the plant, it is only a matter of time before a more serious problem occurs. On Monday, November 14, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission met with Holtec International about a manipulation of fuel canisters, dry casks for radioactive waste storage, that were manufactured by other companies in order to fit within the Holtec interim storage system. Holtec apparently wants to move Arriva Newhorn canisters from their sideways storage to Holtec's upright system at proposed interim storage facilities. But the Arriva Newhorn casks were designed to be on their side rather than the upright position of Holtec casks, and the change of position would change stresses on the welds of the canisters. The process of turning the canisters into this other position is called peening, P-E-E-N-I-N-G, and it is a process not normally accepted by the majority of codes, standards, or specifications for use with these casks, especially as regards the welds. Well, as long as we're talking about nuclear reactors and their waste and their problems, it's time for the nuclear reactor duck and cover report. At Comanche Peak in Texas on November 13, a main steam line radiation monitor failed. With this radiation monitor non-functional, all of the emergency action levels for a steam generator tube rupture could neither be evaluated nor monitored. This unplanned condition is reportable as a loss of assessment capability. <coughs> and at Fermi in Michigan on November 14, off-site notification was required due to on-site sewage spill from a temporary restroom trailer. Just some more nuclear fecal matter making itself known. And that's this week's duck <coughs> and cover report. But wait, there's more. Just because a nuclear reactor is shut down and or inoperable doesn't mean that it's not still an asset that can make mm -mm -mm more money. The permanently shut down Vermont Yankee reactor, which you'll hear much more about in today's featured interview, is up for sale, and it looks like it's got a buyer. No worries about the radioactive waste that's going to be dangerous for tens of thousands of years. No chance of it going back into business to make money as a nuclear reactor. The cleanup is going to cost $1.24 billion, but hey, North Star Group Services wants to buy it. Now, the company has worked on decommissioning projects before, 
but it has never bought a plant only to dismantle it and restore the site, making the Vermont Yankee deal the first of its kind in the United States. And what's in it for North Star? The Plants Decommissioning Fund, which was set aside like a retirement fund during Vermont Yankee's first 30 years of operation. It currently contains about $575 million, and North Star's CEO, Scott State, states that North Star can get the work done, quote, well inside the trust fund balance, end quote. Boy, bargain basement decommissioning of a toxic nuclear reactor site. What could go wrong? That wasn't rhetorical. And the unfinished Belafonte nuclear plant in Hollywood, Alabama, has been sold, with the buyers vowing to get it running. Apparently, they don't understand that you can't hotwire a nuclear reactor. Nuclear Development, LLC, said it had been interested for years in finishing the facility and paid more than three times the minimum bid for the property. The TVA began work at the Belafonte site in the mid-1970s, but never finished the two-reactor plant. As growth in the demand for electricity waned, the utility said it has spent about $5 billion at the facility, parts of which have been removed and sold. So what does the purchaser get? Two unfinished nuclear reactors, several buildings, and 1,600 acres of land on the Tennessee River. There's got to be something else going on here because this makes no sense. To be continued. We learned that on September 27th, David Charles Hahn, who was known as the Radioactive Boy Scout, died at the age of 39. At the age of 17, Hahn wrote to numerous nuclear industry entities, including the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, posing as a high school science teacher. The NRC gave him all the information he needed to be able to go out and get the necessary materials. When his actions were discovered, he was trying to build a breeder reactor in his backyard. The shed that he had been using was dismantled and cleaned up as a Superfund site. No word as to what Han died of, but even money bets that it was cancer. This numbnuts adjacent story is about two lawsuits by Chicago Electrical Union 15 on behalf of grieving nuclear workers who think that Exelon's policy of no drinking on the job is too strict. The grieving employee was informed through certified mail that he has to abstain from alcohol consumption and intoxicating substances during non-work hours, work hours, holidays, and weekends, and that includes the inability to drink green beer on St. Patrick's Day. But as crazy as that is, it's nothing compared to this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, Nuclear Hot Seed, Nuclear Hot Seed, None Nuts of the Week. God bless America. Nuclear Hot Seed, None Nuts of the Week. Over to Japan where voices continued to be raised against the signing of the agreement between India and Japan to have Japan sell nuclear technology to India. Letters of protest were sent by the mayor of Hiroshima, the mayor of Nagasaki, and the women of Fukushima, who invited Prime Minister Modi to come and see the destruction that was wrecked 
by the Fukushima nuclear disaster. So, of course, on Friday, November 11, the deal was signed, marking the first time Japan, the only country to have suffered a nuclear attack, concluded such a pact with a country that is not a signatory to the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. Japanese signatory Prime Minister Shinzo Abe baby then made plans to visit the United States on Thursday, November 17, to be the first world leader to kiss up to, excuse me, meet with the person who apparently maybe won last week's election. But only if you don't follow Greg Palast at gregpalast.com for information about how the election was rigged. We'll have a link to that up on the website as well. Over to Canada, where in another numbnuts adjacent story, the Northern Ontario School of Medicine has received a $5 million grant to research the effects of low-dose radiation on our health and the environment. And who is funding this research? None other than Bruce Power, the Ontario-based energy giant that is wanting to put a waste repository one mile away from the shores of Lake Huron. Think they might have an ulterior motive here? Bruce Power will be giving the school $1 million a year for five years to study how low doses of radiation affect people, including First Nations and fish. They're either being really insulting to First Nations people, or they need a copy editor who understands commas for that sentence. Bruce Power spokesmodel Dr. Doug Borum says, contrary to popular belief, research, faux silence, junk science, but research shows low radiation exposure can be positive because it stimulates the body's repair systems and makes organisms healthier. In other words, he's a hormesis whore. Northern Ontario School of Medicine, do not be suckers to this bait, please. And we will have links up on the website to some really great stories. Arnie Gunderson's article from Truth Out, Nuclear Power is Not Green Energy, It is a Fount of Atomic Waste. Dr. Gordon Edwards, who says that the time has come for a global mobilization against nuclear weapons. Dr. Chris Busby on Nuclear Bomb Test Veterans' Long Wait for Justice, The Last Battle, that's in the UK. And the blog, Why the Nuclear Industry is Killing Off the Human Race, by John Urquhart light reading in case you've got insomnia. We'll have today's featured interview in just a moment, but first, the holidays are coming up. That's awfully hard to say. It always feels like it's too soon, but it's true. They are upon us. And if you're wondering what to give Nuclear Hot Seat to celebrate the season, how about a donation? Any amount will help. It's the right size, the right shape, the right color. We won't have to return it at all. And it will help us keep expanding our reach. Any amount will help. You can make it a Starbucks donation of the equivalent of a cup of coffee and a really nice tip. That can be a one-timer or a monthly recurring donation. Or what the heck, send a MacArthur Foundation-worthy surprise. Anything in between works too. Whatever you can do will help support the work of this show and our social media outreach, which is building listenership every week around the world. 
My gratitude to those of you who donate when, how often, and as much as you can, with a shout-out in particular to those of you who make it recurring. So please, help us keep doing this work. Just go now, right now, hit pause, go to it, and then come back. Go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the big red Donate button. Whatever you can do to help us keep covering the verifiable nuclear news, you have my thanks and my gratitude. Before this week's featured interview, a commemoration. Dr. Stephen Wing passed away from cancer on November 9th, surrounded by his family. He was professor of epidemiology at the University of North Carolina Gillings School of Global Health and a respected researcher on the effects of nuclear radiation on public health. I never created the opportunity to interview Stephen Wing, for which I will always be sorry, but he did speak at the March 2013 Symposium on the Medical and Ecological Consequences of the Fukushima Nuclear Accident, a symposium that was produced by Dr. Helen Caldicott, the Helen Caldicott Foundation, and Physicians for Social Responsibility. That was where I first heard him and was blown away by his quiet delivery of really loud, eye-opening information. Do have just a little sense of his brilliance and the unique nature of his work, here is an excerpt of the speech he gave at that time. Health Impacts of Radiation Release from Nuclear Facilities, Lessons Past and Present. Something that, uh, that we all know is that randomized human experiments looking at the long-term consequences of exposure to various forms of ionizing radiation are not possible. We can't conduct experiments. We can't conduct human experiments. So we have to either extrapolate from cellular or animal studies or conduct non-randomized human studies, which are uh, the epidemiologic studies. And both of these approaches suffer from problems of bias, measurement error, and selection, which, of course, experiments also suffer from biases, but uh, I won't go into that today. So it is a risk assessment or risk estimation, and it is based on the dose estimates produced in a previous report from last year on Fukushima, and it's also based on data from the lifespan study of A-bomb survivors, which you've heard about and you will hear about more in just a moment. I want to emphasize just a few of the things that Ian Fairley already has said, that there are a number of components of the dose that are ignored. The committee chose not to assess doses within 20 kilometers of Fukushima, of the nuclear plant. They chose not to assess the radioactive gases such as xenon. And they did not assess fetal doses. Um, and I, th I think uh, Dr. Wardalecki has already given us a great introduction to why we might care very much about the fetal doses. What I want to start out with is talking about the lifespan study, and I'm going to show you a little bit of information that has been around for a long time from a volume that came out in the 1970s, as well as some very recent information that has just appeared within the last 90 days. 
from Radiation Effects Research Foundation and from our group at the University of North Carolina. These graphs show the immediate casualties at Hiroshima and Nagasaki in relation to distance from the hypocenters of the atomic explosions. And I want to make the point that the study upon which all our risk estimates are based did not begin until more than five years after the bombings. And many people did not survive to be in the study. If mortality from the immediate effects of the bombings is related at all to frailty and to longer-term risk, there would have been a harvesting of the most sensitive, radiosensitive people from this population. I think that's a very important thing to remember, uh, especially because of the destruction of the physical infrastructure of these cities, food supplies, water supplies, hospitals. Hiroshima was hit by a typhoon. So there are lots of forces that are selecting, that we're selecting for healthier people. I also would note that the study of cancer incidents, which you've already heard about at this symposium, did not begin until 1958. So any estimates of cancers following exposure to radiation based on the lifespan study, cancer incidents, omit all cancers that occur within 13 years of exposure. And we know from many other studies that lots of cancers occur in less time than that. And this is something that is routinely omitted when risk estimates from the lifespan study are applied to other populations, including the population of Fukushima and the population of Japan. The late Dr. Stephen Wing. We'll have a link up on our website to his full 30-minute talk, as well as a link to Dr. Caldicott's entire symposium, which continues to be well worth your time and attention. Now for this week's featured interview. Robbie Lepser is an award-winning independent documentary filmmaker and radio producer who has directed over 30 documentaries during the past 40 years. His critically acclaimed full-length and short documentaries, as well as commissioned TV news magazine segments about contemporary social issues, have been broadcast by CNN International, NHK, which is Japan Broadcasting Corporation, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, HBO Cinemax, PBS, CNN, the Sundance Channel, National Public Radio, and Pacifica Radio. We spoke about his most recent film, Power Struggle, which chronicles the battle to shut down the Vermont Yankee nuclear power station. Robbie Lepser, welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Let's start out by having you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, how you got interested in nuclear power issues, and what ultimately led you to make a documentary about Vermont Yankee. I got a very early start when I was 18, when I had a very early education about nuclear power. Um, as a college student, I started first a radio documentary and then a video documentary chronicling the early protests at Seabrook, New Hampshire, 
when the Clamshell Alliance was formed to protest the construction of a nuclear power plant on the seacoast at Seabrook, New Hampshire, in um, 1976 and 1977. And so I learned a lot about nuclear power then. I actually interviewed Dr. Helen Caldicott as part of that documentary and learned a lot about how grassroots movements work. And so as a filmmaker, I chronicled that action to look at how people make change and how people work for nonviolent uh, social change. And so I made a documentary called Seabrook 1977 that chronicled the really seminal protest of the 1970s environmental movement when 1,414 people were arrested and held in National Guard armories for two weeks. That was a, um, a, a big deal for me at age 18. So two years later, uh, nine months after the near nuclear meltdown at Three Mile Island, I went to Three Mile Island in January of 1980 to produce a two-hour radio documentary special interviewing people who live within a five-mile radius of the Three Mile Island plant. And I interviewed farmers and local townspeople about their experiences of going through the nuclear disaster there and produced a two-hour public radio special called Voices from Three Mile Island that was aired on the one-year anniversary of Three Mile Island on public radio stations across the country. I do an anniversary program every year on Three Mile Island, and I believe that some of the clips through many YouTube iterations could be sourced originally from the documentary that you did, but I never knew who the original source was for this. So if indeed some of your clips are on there, thank you very much. You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You're welcome to air the program or air excerpts of it. It was very moving for me, especially the interviews that I did with dairy farmer Jane Lee, who took it upon herself to do a survey of farmers in the Susquehanna River Valley and showed that there was a big increase in uh, stillbirths, miscarriages, and birth defects among farm animals after the accident because the farm animals were out in the environment every day. And that was what was most disturbing to me and, and stood out from that documentary. So you have this amazing launch into the issues. How long did it take and what inspired you to make a documentary about Vermont Yankee? Well, fast forward 35 years later, and I hear that Vermont is the only state in the country whose legislature has the authority to make a decision about the future operation of a nuclear power plant. And so for me as a filmmaker, that suggested that this could be a very interesting documentary looking at the process of how does a state legislature look at this and how do citizens have a voice in this process? I live 18 miles from Vermont Yankee. Uh, in a small town in western Massachusetts. So Vermont Yankee has has long been on my radar. How and when did you start actually making the film? So the idea of making a film I had been sitting with for probably throughout 2009, but it was very unclear when the Vermont legislature was going to vote. And I thought, well, 
the idea of making a film that would show this process as it unfolded would be a fascinating series of events to chronicle and a fascinating drama to chronicle. And yet it was always unclear when the Vermont legislature was going to vote. So when I heard that a group of activists were going to march from Brattleboro to Montpelier, 126 miles over 11 days in the dead of winter, I said to myself, I have to start filming now. The idea of filming people trudging through the snow and ice and, and blizzards across the state of Vermont, just showing that in visual terms shows dedication, shows commitment, and shows that people are willing to sacrifice about an issue that's really important to them. I thought, well, this is a good time to start filming. So that was the very beginning of January 2010. And I thought to myself, well, I'll film this footage and then put it on the shelf, and maybe months or years later, I'll make the film. But little did I know that events had other plans for me because the people who were marching hadn't even made it to the state capitol in Montpelier yet. They were halfway through the march when Entergy, the company that operates Vermont Yankee, announced that there was a massive leak of radioactive tritium into the groundwater. And by the way, this leak was from underground pipes that a year earlier we denied under oath even existed. So when that news came out, it created a firestorm, a political firestorm all across Vermont, and particularly in the state legislature, not only because of the massive leak of radioactivity into the groundwater, but because energy was caught in a lie. And that really fired up the state legislators to uh, pay attention to the issue. So you were at the right place at the right time and able to get some unique footage. Tell us about how the film moved forward from that conjunct. Well, I basically started filming nonstop in the state legislature in particular because they were holding hearings, investigating uh, Vermont Yankee. That's actually where I met Arnie Gunderson and Maggie Gunderson when they were testifying in the state house. I knew <laughs> that they were very powerful and key players in this whole story because they were former nuclear industry insiders. And Arnie himself is a nuclear engineer and spent 20 years in the nuclear industry. And so as a filmmaker, when you find people who are formerly an insider and now are speaking out, that's always really powerful because they have an enormous amount of credibility. And it was Arnie Gunderson who did expose the lies that Entergy were making about the underground pipes. And he discovered that, and this is shown in my film, in the fall of 2009. And at first, Arnie reports that Entergy was trying to smear him and Maggie and trying to question their credibility and then three months later, when Entergy itself was forced to admit the existence of the underground pipes, it was Arnie and Maggie Gunderson who were vindicated. One of the things that is so clear in watching this film is how it was genuinely a David and Goliath battle. Because with Entergy having the money and the connections and all the rest, it was this small group of, in large portion, senior citizen women, the affinity group that I've 
interviewed so frequently here on the show, but that it was normal people living normal lives who then went to the legislature and spoke to their elected representatives in the hope that change would be made. And this being Vermont and still working on very pure democratic principles, meaning democracy principles, that was not an impossibility. And they approached this as the will of the people will be heard. There were many steps along the way in this battle, in this struggle by the citizens to get Vermont Yankee shut down. Give us a quick thumbnail of the sequence of events and how things played out over a course of many years. One thing I do want to point out is that the opposition to Vermont Yankee has been going on for four decades. It really began before the plant was even built. There was major uh, opposition and public debate within Vermont over whether there should be a nuclear plant sited in Vermont. And it was actually um, the Vermont legislature that had to vote on it. And apparently, and I just learned this recently myself, that the sighting of Vermont Yankee won by one vote. Wow. So as a filmmaker, I was very uh, limited in terms of the resources that I had and the scope of the film so that I only focus on the time period in which I started filming, which was from January 2010 forward. But I just want to acknowledge here that there's a rich history of, of opposition to the plant that spans over four decades. I think that was clear in the clarity and the articulateness and the focused nature of the comments that were coming from every single one of the activists you interviewed. It's like they could give lessons in communicating your points with clarity to the rest of the anti-nuclear movement. Well, one of the things that I felt was important was to show how citizens, how they exercised their voice and how they uh, focused in this case in Vermont, on the state legislature, because the state legislature, as I said earlier, was the only state legislature in the country that did have a voice. And that actually came about as a result of citizen organizing in 2006, when the Vermont legislature passed Act 160 that gave the legislature a voice in determining whether or not the license, the state license for Vermont Yankees should be renewed. And, and so to point out here that Vermont is the only state in the country that requires a state license for a nuclear plant in addition to the federal license. So this was the only place that this kind of a battle could happen. Yes. Although apparently all states have the authority to regulate nuclear power plants for non-safety matters, but they're not exercising it. Well, that's a strategy for people to take a look at. But as regards the film, give us a sense of what the beats were that you were walking through and recording in the process of recording the material that became the film. After the political firestorm that was created with the announcement of the um, radioactive tritium leak, two months later, the Vermont Senate voted 26 to four, overwhelmingly, to not renew the state license for Vermont Yankee. That was a major statement on the part of the Vermont government to not support the renewal 
of Vermont Yankee, whose federal license was going to expire two years later in March of 2012. Most observers felt that that vote was going to be challenged at some point by Entergy, the owner and operator of Vermont Yankee. And the federal government, through the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, was also set to rule on whether or not a 20-year federal license extension was going to be approved. So those two things were pending. So in other words, when the Vermont legislature voted, it wasn't the end of the story. In the fall of 2010 was a gubernatorial election in Vermont. Peter Shumlin, the state senator from Putney, which is near uh, Vermont Yankee, and he was the president of the Vermont Senate, and he led the campaign within the Vermont Senate to, to close Vermont Yankee. He became a leading contender in the Democratic primary for governor, and his strong stand on closing Vermont Yankee set him apart and gave him the edge to not only win the Democratic primary, but he also won the general election. And it was the Vermont Yankee issue and his support for renewable energy that set him apart to win the election for Vermont's next governor. In January of 2011, Peter Shumlin was inaugurated, and two months later, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission announced that they were granting a 20-year federal license renewal to Vermont Yankee. And the very next day is when Fukushima happened. You have some of the most moving to me footage in the film of the vigil and demonstration taking place in front of Vermont Yankee only nine days after Fukushima happened with demonstrators having signs on them saying we are all Japanese. It was very deeply moving. How did this sudden manifestation of all of our worst nuclear fears impact you and the making of the film? Fukushima made the dangers posed by nuclear power real. They weren't just an abstraction. They weren't just a theory. They were now real. And the fact that 160,000 people were forcibly evacuated from their homes and relocated is just a stunning statement of the consequences of what happens when nuclear power goes wrong. And so in Vermont, people felt that very, very personally. What I'd like to do now is play a short clip from the film where Arnie Gunderson is explaining how the problems at Fukushima could be the exact same problems at Vermont Yankee. In the United States... There's 23 General Electric Mark I reactors identical to Fukushima Daiichi. Vermont Yankee came online almost identical time to Fukushima Daiichi Unit 1. They have the same design. They're the same reactor, same contractors worked on them, and the same flaws and weaknesses. The containment structure designed to hold in all the radioactivity after an accident is too small. By 1986, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission had determined there was an 85% probability that the containment would blow up and fail in the event of a meltdown. 
so much hydrogen gas would be released that the containment would be blown to smithereens and all of the radioactivity inside it would be released to the public. Fukushima showed us 100%, three of them blew up. The regulators have known that this design is incapable of withstanding an accident since it was built. During the middle of the crisis at Fukushima Daiichi, one of the key regulators at the NRC, a guy named Chuck Casto, said, this is the worst containment in the world. Well, if it's the worst containment in the world, why are we keeping 23 of them running here in America? The accident at Fukushima Daiichi was caused by an earthquake and a tsunami. But really, at the root of it was that the earthquake knocked out the offsite power and that the tsunami knocked out the cooling water pumps along the ocean. That can happen anywhere. You can lose offsite power from a storm or from a terrorist action, and you can lose the pumps that cool the plant from the same exact causes. So we don't need a tsunami, we don't need an earthquake to cause that kind of a damage in an American nuclear plant. Arnie Gunderson of Fairwinds Energy in an excerpt from the film Power Struggle. Back to our interview with the filmmaker, Robbie Lepser. In the film, I follow this one affinity group of senior women all over age 60. As they go to the gates of Vermont Yankee, this is one month after the disaster at Fukushima started. And Frances Crow, one of the activists that I follow in particular, who was 93 years old when I was filming her, she's actually 97 now, still going strong. And here we have that clip from the film. I'm Frances Crow. I'm 93 years old, and I've been involved in trying to say no to the splitting of the atom and all of the consequences of it since 1945. When I heard about Fukushima, you know, I was devastated. I felt I'd got to get there and really put my body at Vermont Yankee because it's our potential Fukushima. Well, I've done everything that I know of to do, and all I have left is my body, and to put it in the way to say no. So, Robbie, where did this filming take you once Fukushima happened? There was a tremendous amount of toing and froing between the state and Entergy and the NRC. Entergy files a federal lawsuit against the state of Vermont, claiming that they have no authority in terms of trying to regulate them and deny them a state license to operate. And I follow the course of the lawsuit in the film. The first ruling of the federal judge who is based in, in Brattleboro, Vermont, struck down the law that gave the Vermont legislature authority over deciding the future operation of Vermont Yankee. However, it was a mixed ruling because the federal court affirmed that the state of Vermont did have authority to grant a state license through the Vermont Public Service Board, which is a three-member quasi-judicial panel that regulates all energy projects in the state. So that ruling was actually appealed by both 
the state of Vermont, who felt that the state legislature did have a voice, and it was also appealed by Entergy, who didn't want any regulation by the state of Vermont over their operation. A year later, a federal appeals court in New York basically affirmed the lower court's ruling, striking down the Vermont legislature from having a voice, but affirming that the future of Vermont Yankee was in the hands of the Vermont Public Service Board. That was still yet to rule. Two weeks after that decision was when Entergy announced that due to financial reasons, it would be closing the plant at the end of December 2014, about a year and a half later. What I found fascinating was how, as is captured in your film, Entergy said, basically, no, it wasn't the environment, it wasn't the activists, it wasn't the pressure, it wasn't the state, it was the money. Which, of course, is what they always say, because to admit that it's anything else gives power to those who oppose them for whichever one of a wide range of reasons you could choose. And quite frankly, after all of that struggle and all of the energy and emotions, it almost came across as anticlimactic when they say, oh, well, we're not making money and sorry, but we're going to be closing down. Where were you when you got that piece of unexpected news and how did it impact you? And then what was your next thought in connection with the film? I didn't find out about the announcement until it was too late for me to get to Brattleboro to film it. Uh, So fortunately, there was a videographer there from the local Brattleboro community television that did film the, um, the Entergy press conference and I was able to include it in the film. I felt very fortunate that Entergy gave me an ending to the film. Otherwise, I could still be filming now. (laughs) Little did I know that it was going to take me five years to make this film. I had no idea what the outcome was going to be. I just had to stick with it as a filmmaker, not knowing the the twists and turns that this story would would take. Uh, Arnie Gunderson has a really good uh, response to Entergy's argument that it closed Vermont Yankee solely for financial reasons. Here's that clip with first the Entergy spokesperson making the announcement and Arnie Gunderson's response. Today is an extremely tough day for us at Entergy and more importantly for the 630 employees at Vermont Yankee. Earlier this morning, we told these men and women that Vermont Yankee Nuclear Power Station will stop operating at the end of its current fuel cycle and move into the decommissioning process in the fourth quarter of 2014. This decision was based on the economics of the plant, not operational performance, not litigation risk, nor political pressure. Simply put, the plant costs exceed the plant revenue, and this asset is not financially viable. Nuclear plants around the country are under enormous financial pressures right now. They're getting older, and everybody knows it costs more to maintain an old car than it does a new car. The same is true for a nuclear plant. All of them are going to require modifications from lessons learned after Fukushima Daiichi. For my Yankee, was going to need about $250 million of repair and replacement 
over the next two or three years to keep running. And Entergy didn't want to spend that money. Entergy knew that Vermonters were not going to allow this plant to operate unless it was in top-notch condition. And they couldn't afford it. So they pulled the plug on Vermont Yankee for economics, but it was economics under the scrutiny of a smart electorate who had kept themselves informed for the last 10 years. It's very easy for someone to take a partisan position on nuclear energy, which of course is what I do every week on this show. What I was struck by in your film was how even-handed and unheated the filmmaking was. I never felt that you had a voice or an agenda. You may have had a point of view, but there was never an agenda that you pushed on that intruded upon the story that was unfolding in front of us. Did you ever feel the temptation to tip the audience's perspective in a given direction based on your personal beliefs? As a documentary filmmaker, it's important for me to include all perspectives in this film. So you see supporters of the plant who live in the local town of Vernon. You see Larry Smith, the spokesperson for Entergy and Vermont Yankee. You see representatives of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. And I believe that as a filmmaker, it's, it's important to include all of these perspectives because they are part of the story and it's also part of what makes an interesting drama is this tension between all sides. So as a filmmaker, it's important for me to include all of these perspectives as, as part of the drama. Power Struggle was produced with some support from HBO and NHK, which is Japan's National Public Broadcasting Organization. What is the status of the film regarding being aired by these two entities? Well, in terms of NHK, I met producers from NHK at a documentary film conference in Toronto, Canada in 2013. And I showed them a 13-minute um, sample of my film on my iPad. And they were immediately interested because, as you can imagine, nuclear power is the number one issue in, in Japan due to the Fukushima disaster. They then offered to work with me, to collaborate with me, to create a co-production. So I, I did things backwards. Normally you produce your American version first and then international versions later. But because the producers from NHK in Japan were so hot to trot in getting a program out quickly, they asked me to produce a 50-minute version, 5.0, so it's half the length of my uh, U.S. version. And we did this in 2014. I produced a, a customized Japanese version that was aired nationally in Japan in the summer of 2014, which was rebroadcast on the anniversary of Fukushima in March of 2015 as well. Congratulations on that. So how are things going with this extended version of the film as regards HBO? I received partial funding from HBO back in 2012. However, um, they didn't schedule any broadcast of it until I could deliver them a fully finished program. And they've been supportive of the program ever since. 
However, just a week ago, I received the very distressing news that HBO has now decided not to air Power Struggle. Primarily, they told me, because of scheduling and timing, that they are now totally booked with documentary programs through the end of 2018. And so they were looking to possibly schedule Power Struggle in 2019, and they realized that that didn't make any sense, that given that the film is shot primarily in 2010 and 2012, that it would look outdated. And I actually agree with them. This film needs to be aired next year, and while it's still very current and timely. So I'm looking for another broadcaster now. So if anybody out there has any connections with PBS or other cable uh, networks, please contact me. I will have them do so. We will also put contact information for you up on the website, nuclearhotseat.com. I'm looking to set up a national grassroots film tour of Power Struggle in 2017. So I'm looking to travel around the country to speak with the film at showings of the film hosted by grassroots community groups, schools, and community centers. So if people are interested in hosting a screening of Power Struggle uh, with myself as film director speaking along with uh, local activists, please contact me. And the best way to contact you would be? At the film's website, which is www.powerstrugglemovie.com. We wish you every possible success with this extraordinary film. And for now, Robbie Lepser, thank you so much for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you so much, Libby. Award-winning documentary filmmaker Robbie Lepser. The website for Power Struggle is powerstrugglemovie.com. And we will have a link up on our website, nuclearhotseat.com under this episode, number 282. Activist shout-out! Many thanks to Scott Portsline of Three Mile Island Alert for once again helping me through a technical challenge. Could not have done this one without you, Scott. Here's today's final thought. Many of you may have heard of what's called the butterfly effect, the concept that even small distant changes can have enormous effect. Butterfly effect is usually credited to American meteorologist Edward N. Lawrence, but in truth, its origins are found in the 1952 Ray Bradbury story, Sound of Thunder, which was included in Bradbury's 1953 anthology, Golden Apples of the Sun. In the story, time travel is not only possible, It's been tricked out for vacations by the very wealthy. The only proviso is that people going back in time must stay on certain elevated walkways so that they don't interface with the environment and possibly create an unwanted change. A group of men show up to go back in time to have a hunting trip to bag a dinosaur one that would have been killed by natural causes shortly after they arrived, so it's okay for them to go back and kill it. They arrive at the travel center the day after a contentious election, where by the narrowest of margins, a really good, democracy-loving candidate has won. When they go back in time, 
the dinosaur proves to be so frightening that one of the individuals, the one who was the instigator of this entire trip, freaks out, jumps off the walkway that they're supposed to be on, the suspended walkway, and goes running through the jungle. Well, another person in the team shoots the dinosaur, which a moment later would have been killed by a tree that was felled by lightning. But meanwhile, they have to go and bring this guy who freaked out back. And they do. When they get back to the present, there's something different from the moment they arrive. The air smells funny. The signs on the wall have certain words that are spelled differently. It's not quite the same. And when they ask the man behind the counter who won the election, it turns out that a hard liner, someone antithetical to freedom, has been elected. They turn on the man who had fallen off the walkway, and as he backs away from them, he tips over, and on the bottom of his shoe, you see a clod of dirt. And in the middle of that clod of dirt, is a butterfly. He stepped on a butterfly and changed everything. So given our current circumstances at this moment in time, I wish to say that if I unknowingly stepped on a butterfly in any way that contributed to this most recent shift in reality, my most humble apologies to the universe. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, November 15, 2016. Material for this week's program has been researched and compiled from miningawareness.wordpress.com, clearwater.org, abcnews.go.com, dailycaller.com, nei.org, theenergycollective.com, fool.com, Karen Nickel and Just Moms STL on Facebook, truthout.org, arstechnica.com, cndpindia.org, politico.com, theecologist.org, mywestnipissingnow.com, Dr. Gordon Edwards, MarianneWildart.wordpress.com, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and the bruised, perhaps shaken, but definitely stirred to action planet protectors who gather at the Nuclear Hot Seat site on Facebook, where you are invited to come join us, like us, and share our posts with your friends and family. Theme music written by me, sung by Marilee Weber, Accompaniment by John Barnard, recorded at Winslow Court Studio in Hollywood. If you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. We are copyright 2016, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. A reminder that your support is the lifeblood of Nuclear Hot Seat. So if you value verifiable news about nuclear issues delivered every week with as much humor as possible, please consider helping us out with a donation by going to NuclearHotSeat.com. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that nuclear waste is forever and no way is that stuff clean, green, or sustainable. So let's get to work. 
because we have all had our nuclear wake-up call. Now, don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.